Thank you for listening to City Awakening Podcast. City Awakening is a gospel-centered church located in East Orlando that plants new churches, striving to be a multicultural, multi-generational church. For more information about City Awakening, follow us on social media or visit www.cityawakening.org. Well, good morning. My name is Lewis. I'm lead pastor here at City Awakening. Welcome to those of you who are here on site and welcome to those of you who are watching online. At this time, we want to go ahead and dismiss our children to go to children's ministry. Our children's ministry leaders are in the back. We do uh, like our children being able to come together and worship together with their families and then dismissing them for age-appropriate content, age-specific content. If you didn't get a chance to check your children in, uh, please see our leaders in the back and they would be more than happy to assist you with that. Uh, Now, as for today, today we are continuing our teaching series that we've been doing called Graceful Resistance, and it is all about living with convictions in a culture of compromise. We're discussing some major cultural topics that are being discussed both in in our churches and in um, school systems in our city and our society with friends and things like that all throughout our culture. We're discussing things like um, critical race theory, uh, sexual um, identity, sexuality, gender identity, uh, religious liberties, and cancel culture. Now, just to be clear, like I said last week, I'm going to say it this week, I'm going to say it next week as well, we are not teaching on these things to be controversial. We are teaching on these things because we want to show you that the gospel can bring healing and guidance in what's already considered to be controversial topics. All right, so that's what we're doing, and we're starting our approach to this is to really teach a biblical perspective first, and then we're going to address some questions after those, uh, that biblical perspective, okay? So we'll teach that first, and then we'll hit some of the uh, major questions that people have surrounding these topics. And last week, we talked about the topic of race and critical race theory. Well, today, we're going to talk about sexual orientation, in particular, same-sex orientation. All right, now, this is a very difficult topic to teach on because Christians, I mean, we, I think Christianity needs to admit this, churches and people, that, you know, we've handled this topic very poorly a lot of times over the years. A lot of people have. Not everybody, but a lot of people have. And so it has created some very deep wounds within people who have a same-sex orientation to the point to where they, have, they feel wounded or even feel unloved and they feel unwelcomed even within churches. And so we hope that if you're watching online or if you're here at our church, we hope that you find that to be um, a different story here at this church because our desire is to be a place that, uh, where skeptics and believers can seek truth and find joy in community. Now, we do believe that that truth is found in the Bible. And, and we love the Bible. The Bible has transformed our life. Christ has transformed our life through this. And so you may find yourself disagreeing with us on some of these things. And we're okay with engaging in some dialogue on this. But please know that we do love you and we do care for you. And you are always welcome to come here, even if you're in disagreement with us on these things. Okay? So uh, to prep for this message, though... Um, I did uh, study some great Christian thinkers uh, like uh, Sam Albury, uh, Dr. Christopher Yon, and, and Rosaria Butterfield. Um, I research way more people than this, but I mentioned those three because these are three um, people who at one point in their life were actually living a same-sex orientation lifestyle before becoming a Christian. And so they give us some, some very good insights on the emotions, the, um, some of the struggles, and even some of the thoughts that same-sex orientation people have while also pointing us to the very hope and the transformative power of the gospel. So I made sure that I at least included those three. We're actually going to have a resource page for you for all these messages on our website that you can always go to if you want to dive in deeper on some of these topics. But that being said, let's go ahead and turn our Bibles over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 verses 25 to 32. If you're new to your Bible, it'll be in the last quarter part of your Bible. 
but we'll be in Romans chapter 1, verses 25 to 32, and the title of today's message is, Should I Be Affirming of Every Sexual Orientation? All right, and here's the big idea of the message. You can still be loving without affirming or alienating. All right, you can still be loving without affirming or alienating those who you disagree with on these things. All right, and you're going to see that uh, as we go on today. Um, for a little bit of context here, uh, the book of Romans, the letter of the Romans, was written by the Apostle Paul, who I mentioned last week at one point used to hate Christians and used to actually kill Christians. But he ends up becoming a Christian and ends up dying for his faith as a Christian after he meets the resurrected Jesus. Well, uh, Jesus loved Paul. Now, he loved Paul without affirming or alienating Paul's actions. And it's the love of Jesus that starts to transform Paul's life forever. Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 24, he says, we all have the same issue. Everybody in the world has the same issue. It's that we've turned away from the very God who's created us. He says all of us have that issue. We've all turned to worship created things instead of worshiping our creator. All right, let's pick it up from there. Here we go. Romans chapter 1, verses 25 to 32 states this. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator. All right, Paul is talking specifically about skeptics and unbelievers in his society during that time, uh, and even skeptics and believers really throughout the world, uh, when, uh, who have been worshiping and pursuing other things rather than pursuing God. But the reality is, is we've all done this at some point in our lives before. You know, we all will take certain things that God created for our good, and we turn those good things into God things. For example, you know, we will take a good thing like some of the natural resources that we have or resource, resource, basic necessities of life for survival, and we will turn those into a God called greed. We will take a good thing like food, and we will turn it into a God called gluttony. We will even take a good thing like sex and sexuality, and we will turn it into a God called sexual openness and sexual freedom. Right? We do this all the time where we will take good things that God intended for us and we will turn them into God things. We have turned away from our God in order to worship and pursue created things instead of the creator God. Right? And Paul says, well, well, okay, so then what does God do with us on that then? How's God supposed to handle that? Well, he says, you know, if you, if you want life without me, then I'm going to give that to you. All right, I'm going to give you verse 26. For this reason... God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. In other words, um, okay, you, you want to live a life without God? Well, Paul's saying that's what he did. He, he allowed them, fine, go ahead, and then you can have that life without God. You, we want life without? Okay, well then, I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to give you a life without me. C.S. Lewis put it well. Uh, he says, God in the end gives people what they most want, including freedom from himself. What could be more fair? And then he drives his point home even further in his book called The Great Divorce. He says, to those who object to the doctrine of hell, what are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all, at all costs give them a fresh start? He did that when Jesus died on the cross. You want God to forgive, but they don't ask for forgiveness. You want God to leave them alone. That's what hell is. See, both Paul and C.S. Lewis are saying that it isn't God who rejects us. It's us who've rejected God. We're the ones that have chosen to reject God, and in the end, God says, okay, if this is, this is what you want, then I will give you what you want in the end, which is life apart from me in hell. Unless you repent 
and you turn to me. This is what Paul is saying. This is what C.S. Lewis is saying. Again, verse 26 states, For this reason God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. What Paul is doing here is he's giving an example, one of many examples of, of how people have rejected God and maybe turned to worshiping other things instead of worshiping God. He gives the example of same-sex orientation as an, unnatural, um, as an unnatural orientation or an unnatural sexuality that's opposed to God's design, God's natural design, uh, which is for a heterosexual monogamous sexuality. The Greek word there for unnatural literally means to go against nature. Sam Albury, who I had mentioned earlier, uh, was a guy who was, um, he, he was a, a practicing same-sex orientation person for years before becoming a Christian. And in his book, um, Is God Anti-Gay?, he addresses um, this text here in Romans 1. Albury states this, he says, when Paul uses the word natural and unnatural, he isn't referring to our subjective expressions of what feels natural to us. This is why we can't say, well, God made me feel this way, or, or God made me this way, so it must be okay. Paul points in, points in Romans 1 is, is that our nature, as we experience it, isn't natural as God intended it. All of us have desires that are warped as a result of our sin-fallen nature. Desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin distorted me, not a reflection of how God made me. Notice that he says, all of us have had this issue. In other words, whenever we reject God, it leads to our sin nature taking over and causing us to crave things. We start craving things that God never intended us to crave, or we start to crave them in unhealthy ways. This is true for both same-sex orientation people and heterosexual orientation people. We have all at one point in our lives rejected God Our sin nature starts to really take control of us in that moment, and we start to crave things that God never intended us to crave, or we we crave them in unhealthy ways, making them God things. This leads to all other kinds of issues, Paul says in verse 28. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt, corrupt mind, so they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. Those are economic issues. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossipers, slanderers. Those are relationship issues. They're God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil. Those are spiritual issues. Disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Those are family issues. What Paul is basically saying is is when we choose to reject God, it leads to all kinds of issues in our lives, which is why we cannot do what Christians have done often with a text like this, which is to elevate same-sex orientation issues while ignoring our own depravity issues. Paul does not allow us the opportunity to do that. 
because he lists a multitude of issues that come from our rejection of God and our depravity. We cannot single out, Paul is not singling out same-sex orientation here. Okay, he is singling out the depravity that all of us have from rejecting God and choosing a life without God. This is what Paul is doing here. He's basically saying all of us have depravity issues, and and it leads to a whole mess of other issues. But thankfully, we have a loving and kind God who is willing to give us a way out of our depravity. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says this, There is no one righteous, not even one. All have turned away. But the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, it doesn't matter. Listen, everybody in this room here today, right here, right now, and watching online can have a fresh start in Christ. You can. It doesn't matter what you believed about Jesus in the past. It matters what you believe about Jesus in the present. It doesn't matter what your struggles with depravity are. It matters what kind of Savior that Jesus is. There isn't a single person in this room who does not have depravity issues that they struggle with. But Jesus is a loving and a kind Savior who is willing to save, to redeem, and to transform anyone who repents of their sins and turns to him. We are saved and transformed and redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ. Anybody can. Same-sex same orientation, heterosexual orientation. Jesus can save and redeem all of us when we cry out to him. This is our biblical foundation that we have. The biblical founta- foundation is that same-sex orientation is just one of many issues of depravity that we all struggle with. We all have our issues with with depravity, but it is never beyond, none of this is ever beyond the saving, redeeming grace of Jesus. So that's our biblical foundation. And so let me address some major questions that people have regarding this topic. Number one, are people born with a same-sex orientation? That's a big question that people have. The dominant narrative of our culture is that people are born with a same-sex orientation, but that's not true. There is actually zero conclusive evidence that people are born with a same-sex orientation. The American Psychiatric Association states, some people believe that sexual orientation is innate and fixed. However, sexual orientation develops across a person's lifetime. Okay, in other words, people aren't born with a same-sex orientation. It's something that develops over time. That's the American Psychiatric Association. Now, the American Psychological Association agrees. They state, although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cultural influences on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by a particular factor or factors. Okay, that is... Um, both of those associations are the largest psychiatric and psychological associations in the world. And they are in agreement that same-sex orientation uh, isn't something that people are born with, okay, as opposed to the cultural narrative. Now, in case you would consider that to be something that's biased, um, then let me give you a, a quote from somebody who you can't claim is biased. 
Why? Because Lisa Diamond is considered to be a um, well-respected professor of developmental health psychology at the University of Utah. She is also a respected member of the American Psychological Association, and she is also a respected lesbian activist. Okay? She says this. Diamond states, I'm not suggesting we throw out categories like gay and bisexual, but we have to be careful about presuming they represent natural phenomena like height. I find it intriguing that she actually uses the phrase natural phenomena like Paul did in Romans. She says we have to be careful of using same-sex orientation as a natural phenomena. Well, why is that, Ms. Diamond? She comes in and she says, as a community, we need to stop saying, please help us, we are born this way and can't change, as an argument for legal standing. That argument is going to bite us because now we know there's enough data out there that the other side is aware of. This being a well-respected professor, psychologist, and lesbian activist. And she is saying that the cultural narrative isn't true, that people with same-sex orientation aren't born that way. See, the biblical narrative teaches that when God created us in Genesis 1-2, to 2, he gave us a, a heterosexual orientation when he created us male and female for each other. But Paul says in Romans 1 that that orientation, we exchanged that in orientation for more unnatural things. Again, that is true for both same-sex orientation and heterosexual orientation people. We also know that psychologically, our psychosocial environments can have an influence on the development of our sexuality, good or bad, like the American Psychiatric Association stated. But the cultural narrative that people are born with a same-sex orientation isn't true. Number two, isn't denying same-sex desires denying who people really are? And isn't that a denial of who people really are? No, it's actually a discovery of who people really are, a discovery of who people were actually created and meant to be. See, as Paul says again in Romans 1, when you know, we, we all have depravity issues, which means we all start to view our sexuality through a distorted lens, putting all of us in that category. And if you build your identity on a distorted view of sexuality, then it's going to lead to a distorted identity and distorted sexual activity. We cannot build it based upon that identity, but aligning ourselves with Jesus ends up becoming not a denial of who we are, but it ends up becoming a discovery of who we are, of who we were actually created and meant to be. Jesus helps to restore our identity from our sexual depravity. I think we need to be very careful of allowing our feelings and our desires to drive the decisions that we make in life. Because sometimes our desires and our feelings can be deceiving. We can think that things, um, some things that can feel good for us doesn't necessarily mean that it is good for us. I mean, for an example, you know, just, uh, you know, say that, you know, like, it would be foolish for me to really stand up here and be like, hey, uh, listen, you know what, um, 
you know, I, I have a heterosexual orientation, okay? And so because having a heterosexual orientation feels good for me and that's what, what you know, my desires and that feels good for me, um, then I should just go, go to my wife and be like, you know, hey, honey, listen, you know, uh, you know, because this is, um, you know, how God made me, and this is my desire, you know, and this is, this is, you know, where am I leaning? I'm sorry, you know, but I should, you know, be true to myself and my desires and just keep on pursuing other women. My wife would say to me, oh, yeah, okay, well, so then I guess I need to be true to myself and my desires too, which means I'm going to smack the stupid out of you. <laughs> right? She would too. My point in that is that not everything that feels good to us is necessarily good for us. Just because we have a certain desire in us doesn't mean we should just have a free-for-all. No, we should have some sexual ethics. We should have some boundaries on these things. Sex is a good thing. It is not a bad thing. But God certainly puts some parameters on that. And so we do need to have a sexual ethic for us, both, you know, same-sex orientation, heterosexual orientation. God needs to give us some parameters on what these things look like for our good. We have viewed things, though, through a distorted lens, and so when we start to align ourselves back with Jesus, he starts to reorient us with who he truly created us to be. I love what Albury states here. He says, um, Jesus shows us that, that um, in its God-given context, the value of sex is far greater than we might have realized. And yet, even there, it isn't ultimate. Sex is a powerful urge, but it isn't fundamental to wholeness and human flourishing. Jesus was the most fully human of all people, yet remained celibate. Jesus was fully human, fully divine, yet fully single, celibate, and satisfied. Jesus was full of joy without having to seek a sexual partner to fulfill that joy. Jesus is the one who can give us a healthy sexuality and a healthy identity. He is the one who can help us to discover who we really are. All right, number three, is life transformation possible for people with a same-sex orientation? Yes, it is possible. Christianity has numerous testimonies of Jesus transforming people's lives. And I just would want to encourage you to start with reading your Bible and, and uh, do it with, read it with a strong um, Christian friend of yours. And I would also encourage you to read books together that were written by some of the people we mentioned earlier. You know, Sam Albury, Dr. Christopher Yawn, and, and Rosaria Butterfield. I would encourage you to, to start there and to... Um, read those things, but, but also let us not mistake uh, the belief that heterosexual people don't need transformation in this area too when it comes to um, sexual things. Because heterosexual people need transformation too. Heterosexual people still struggle with things like, like lust, pornography, sexual purity uh, within singleness, sexual purity in marriage. Okay, so heterosexual people, they need the transformation of Christ for their life too. I think sometimes heterosexual Christians forget this when discussing same-sex orientation topics. I think sometimes uh, they will, in an attempt to uphold a biblical view of sexual purity, forget their own struggles to fulfill that requirement of sexual purity. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that we all fall short of purity before God. 
even beyond sexual ethics. We all fall short of purity before God, and so we all need the saving, transforming grace of Jesus for our lives. We also need the restorative grace of Jesus for our lives should we find ourselves stumbling in sin again, because some parts of our depravity may take longer to transform than others. And so if you are discouraged because maybe you have stumbled in your, own, um, in your own depravity in some way or another, go back to Jesus again because he's willing to restore you again. Dr. Christopher Yawn states, change isn't the absence of temptations. It's the ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Both same-sex and heterosexual orientation people need the saving grace of Jesus to save us, to transform us, and continually restore us to live out a holy sexuality. Number four, what, is, what if a same-sex partnership is committed and faithful? There is no doubt that there are some same-sex relationships that are extremely committed and faithful to each other. I'd even argue some are more committed and faithful than some heterosexual relationships that we know. So it is a valid question. But Paul addresses a similar thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when he addresses a guy who marries his father's wife, who is presumably his stepmother. When Paul addresses the guy, he doesn't address their loving commitment to each other in the relationship. He addresses the type of relationship that it is because it goes against Leviticus 18. He never questions their loving commitment for each other. He addresses, addresses that it goes, the type of relationship was that it goes against God's design, according to Leviticus 18. There is um, no doubt that, that you know, people can be faithfully committed to, to someone, but sometimes people can be faithfully committed also to the wrong things. There's a lot of people in the world who are faithfully committed to things, but they're commit, faithfully committed to wrong things. Being faithfully committed to a sinful activity doesn't mean that that sinful activity is good. We can be faithfully committed sometimes and faithfully committed to the wrong things. Okay, so uh, number five, why didn't Jesus ever talk about same-sex orientation? Right, why didn't he ever talk about it? Now, this is a major one. A lot of people are like, well, you know what? If it was such a big deal, then, then how come Jesus didn't ever talk about it? Actually, he did address it. He dresses it in Matthew chapter 19 by upholding the Genesis account of God's design for heterosexual monogamous um, sexuality. He also addresses it in Mark chapter 7 when he condemns pornea. Pornea is where we get uh, our word pornography from. It is a, a Greek word that entails all sexual immorality, which is why it's translated as sexual immorality. And so it's not just, you know, choosing any kind of sexual, uh, sexual immorality. No, it's, it's encompassing all sexual immorality that is outside of the heterosexual monogamous relationship. And so uh, uh, Paul, or Jesus' original hearers, when they hear Jesus condemning pornonia, they understand that to encompass all kinds of sexual immorality that they were aware of in the culture. All sexual activity outside of the heterosexual monogamous relationship, which would include same-sex um, orientation relationships. Right? They did, he didn't have to speak and say the word specifically same-sex orientation 
because it was common knowledge to them. It was like, you know, it would be like, you know, um, basically saying, well, you know what, Jesus never mentions bestiality either. So does that mean that we should automatically assume that Jesus would condone bestiality? No, because bestiality was considered a part of pornonia. It was a part of that category. It was common sense to people back then. Now, uh, he also, Jesus also taught us to trust the entirety of Scripture and so other parts of Scripture talk about this topic in Genesis 19, in Romans 1, in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, and in Leviticus 18. The Leviticus 18 text actually sets sexual parameters and boundaries for heterosexual people as well. Um, talks about um, you know, not engaging in incest or in having multiple partners. And so I think this is important for us to realize because a lot of times people think that the Bible is singling out same-sex orientation, but it's not. It's addressing boundaries even on when it comes to heterosexual orientations as well. And so it is addressing both, not just one. And if you want to have a biblical perspective, like, I mean, you know, what we need to be careful of is we need to be careful not to just single out, if you're really wanting to understand a biblical view on sexuality and sexual ethics, don't just single out single, same-sex orientation or single out just heterosexual orientation. No, look at the Bible in its entirety to see what its sexual ethics says, and it's going to encompass both. All right, number six, why uphold same-sex orientation laws but ignore other biblical laws. Right, this is another big one. You know, people are like, well, you know, man, you Christians are always picking and choosing what you want to believe and not believe or what you want to follow and not follow. Why is it that Christians are going to uphold same-sex orientation laws, but yet you're not going to uphold the law to abstain from eating pork? Like, why? You know? I mean, people who basically ask that have a misunderstanding of biblical laws. It's a great question, but it's a misunderstanding of biblical laws. See, there are three types of laws within the Bible. They would be categorized under these three things. There's what's called civil laws, ceremonial laws, and moral laws. Civil laws are laws that God put in place to establish Israel as a nation. Right? And those laws we don't have to follow anymore because the New Testament tells us to obey the laws of the land because the gospel is going to spread, we're going to be scattered, and Israel's already been established as a nation, so we don't have to follow that. Ceremonial laws are laws that God put in place for Israel to worship God. Well, we don't have to follow those anymore because Jesus perfectly fulfilled all the ceremonial laws so that we can worship him anytime, anywhere. The moral laws of God are moral laws that God put in place for all of humanity to live good moral lives, to be able to care for each other, and to care for our creation. We uphold the moral laws of God because God's moral character does not change. Sexual ethics is a part of the moral laws of God. It's laws of morality, therefore we are to uphold those moral laws because God's moral character doesn't change. Tim Keller states, the coming of Christ changed how we worship, but not how we live. So we still follow the moral laws of God because God's moral character doesn't change. Last two questions. Number seven, does having same-sex orientation send you to hell? No. It doesn't. Same-sex orientation does not send you to hell, just like a heterosexual orientation doesn't send you to heaven. A biblical perspective is that it's rejecting Jesus that sends people to hell, 
and it's accepting Jesus that sends people to heaven. We are not saved by our sexual orientation. We are saved by the grace of Jesus. This means that repentance and salvation looks the same for same-sex orientation people as it does for heterosexual orientation people. It is where we go to Christ and we say to Christ, Jesus, would you forgive me for rejecting you? Would you forgive me for wanting to live my life without you? I believe that you died for my sins on the cross and I want to submit all of my life to you, including my sexuality. We are not saved by our orientation. We are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, through repentance and faith. Now from that comes a lordship of Christ issue, right? Where we need to submit ourselves to, is Je- see, some people just want Jesus to be their savior, but not their Lord. No, it is we want him as savior and Lord, which means we want him to save us from our sins, but we also want him to be Lord over all of our lives, including our sexuality, not just parts of our lives. Is Jesus Savior and Lord of your life? Are there areas in your life where you don't want him to be Lord of? See, that's a different issue that we need to wrestle with. All right, last, number eight, how do we live with graceful resistance? How do we live with a graceful resistance in a culture of sexual openness? More importantly, how do we love same-sex orientation people without affirming or alienating? I'll give you a couple of things. Number one, befriend people like Jesus befriended you. Befriend people like Jesus befriended you. We are not at war with same-sex orientation people. Because Jesus died for the sins of both same-sex orientation and heterosexual people. We are not at war with each other. A lot of my same-sex orientation friends, they have some deep struggles and some deep hurts that they have to deal with on a day-to-day basis that a lot of other people don't have to deal with. They have deep fears of being rejected by those that they love. They have deep concerns of being isolated from their friends, from their family, even from churches. Christians need followers of Jesus, need to do everything we can to befriend same-sex orientation people so that the love of Jesus can help to comfort them. They need the comforting, loving friendship of Jesus just as much as we need the loving, comfort friendship of Jesus. Number two, meet people where they are, not where you think they should be. I think too too many times Christians give this perspective of the gospel and of Christianity that, you know, first you need to clean your life up and then you can come to Jesus. When the true gospel of Jesus is, no, first you come to Jesus and then he helps to transform you. Then he helps to clean your life up. Don't go expecting somebody to already have arrived in holiness when you and I have not already arrived in holiness ourselves. We need to be able to talk with people um, in a way that engages them at their level of receptivity for growth in Christ, while at the same time being humble enough to admit that we still need much growth in Christ too. Number three, talk about sin generally instead of specifically. We need to remember that this is not a single sin issue. This is a total depravity issue. There are multiple sins that we need to be transformed from, not just 
sexual sins that we have. This is a totality of our depravity and our need for Christ to redeem and to restore every part of our lives. Like I said before, if you stumble in one area, turn back to Christ again because he will eventually restore all our depravity upon entering into eternity with him for those who have their faith in him. Last one, number four, keep the focus on Jesus. Keep the focus on helping people to get to know Jesus, to meet Jesus. Keep that as your your main priority. Because that's where the power of transformation comes from. The power of transformation does not come by hammering people in the head over their sins. It comes from people growing deeper in their love and their relationship with Jesus. Now, I want to be clear. This does not mean that we don't ever talk about sin. Sometimes people can ignore talking about sin so much that nobody ever even understands that there's a hell that exists or that, that, that Jesus is real and that transformation and lordship of Christ needs to take place in people's lives. So no, we, we still talk about sin, but we have to get people to meet Jesus first before we can expect them to submit to the lordship of Jesus second. And so keep the focus on people getting to know Jesus more because the more we fall in love with Jesus, the less we'll start to fall in love with our sin doesn't happen overnight. It's a transformative process that happens over time with Christ. All right, listen, this is the big idea of the message. You can still be loving without affirming or alienating. See, our cultural narrative has basically given us two options when it comes to Christians and same-sex orientation, people interacting with each other. It's either we affirm or we alienate each other in our disagreements. Those are the options that our cultural narrative gives us. But see, Jesus gives us a third option, a better option, and it's that we can be loving without affirming or alienating each other. Jesus held the highest view of Scripture and the highest view of holiness— while at the same time still loving those who did not. Jesus was often sharing meals with tax collectors, prostitutes, people who would have been considered alienated by the culture. He had a thief cry out to him for salvation on the cross. John chapter 1 verse 14 says that Jesus was full of grace and he was full of truth. Jesus lived loving other people without affirming or alienating other people. Jesus loved so, people so well that people felt comfortable exposing their hearts to him. City Awakening, we should love people so well that people feel comfortable exposing their hearts to us as well. We should love like Jesus, but not affirm or alienate like our culture. The issue with an affirming culture is where does the sexual freedom end? It has no ending in an affirming culture, which is disastrous, mostly for women and children. We have to have sexual ethics and sexual boundaries, but the question is, who gets to decide those boundaries? Rosaria Butterfield, who I had mentioned before, she was a former practicing lesbian who ends up accepting Christ. She said that Romans chapter 1 is the chapter that exposed her heart and caused her to ask the question, who is it that gets to declare what's good in my life? Is it me or is it God? 
Butterfield states this, homosexuality is not the core of our rebellion against God. A desire to be God is. A desire to be the one who gets to declare good and evil and play judge rather than be judged. City Awakening. Who gets to be God in your life? This is a question for all of us. Who is it that gets to call the shots in your life? Who is it that gets to determine what is good and not good for your life? If you believe that God exists, then you should also believe that that God knows what's best for you, including what's best for your sexuality. Let's pray. Jesus, my heart has been heavy this entire week on this topic. Because I know that there are so many deep wounds from this topic. I'm so tired of the the throwing our daggers at each other in all of this. There's such beautiful truth and freedom and liberation in your word. Jesus, help us as Christians to grow in our love for others so that we can deliver that beauty and that liberation in your word. Help us to not waver on your truth. Help us to be full of grace and truth like you, Jesus. I pray for the healing of every person in this room who has maybe suffered from some sort of sexual struggles or issues in their life or sexual struggles and issues that others have caused against them. Jesus, would you provide healing in this moment right now? Would you help those who are far from you submit their life to you today, putting their trust in you, not just as their Savior, but also as their Lord? Jesus, would you transform all of us from our depravity so we can be more loving like you? We thank you for your good news that you have lived, you have died, and you've risen again. And there is true hope and salvation and restoration that is available to you in you. Jesus, help us to receive that good news today. It's in your beautiful name that we pray.